Hey everybody, I'm Patrick. I'm Charlotte. Still on hiatus. This is week three. Hopefully next week should have some new new shipwrecks for you. Yeah, I mean, I was hot trying, new episodes. Hot new episodes. The, again, Freshwater ran out last week. I was spelling out help on the beach with coconuts, but it turns out uh, behind me as I had placed them, Patrick was picking them up and taking big bites out of them as, eating, were they, yeah. as though they were apples. Drinking all of the water. Drinking all the once. water, yeah, which is, of course, the most important part of <laughs> yeah, signaling. But somebody. I was very thirsty. You were, but so, now you're not. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. <laughs> not. Not for a little while. Uh, today, we're going to be reposting the Halifax explosion episode, which is a harrowing tale. Horrifying tale. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. It is. It is biblical almost yeah. in nature. Uh, and it's it's one of the more interesting and also extremely tragic wrecks we cover. Uh, again, we're doing this to keep the keep the feed alive. In the meantime, while we search for our new writer, not replacing Brian as the host. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully she'll be back next week. Keep them bones bleached. I want those bones white. 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 As hell. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 6th, 1917. World War I is raging as the entire globe seems to be in conflict. And one freighter, the SS Mont Blanc, has a mission. It's loaded with extremely sensitive cargo and is preparing to head to Europe to deliver the goods to the Allied powers, but it would never make it. Instead, the Mont Blanc would become one of the worst disasters in history. I'm Charlotte. I'm Patrick. I'm Brian. Ahoy and welcome aboard Ship Hits the Fan, a podcast about some of history's most notable uh-ohs and whoopsies on the high seas. Not three months hence, these three noble sailors set course with an excursion into the unknown. Not one of salt and spray, of tack and mainsail, of port and starboard, and port, four letters left. Sure, yeah. yeah. No, this was a journey of mics and cables, Google Docs and hyperlinks, learning and teaching. Our bones bleached in these sands, we saluted our Maldovan girlfriends, and we shot jungle monsters through the heart. We braved the graveyard of the Pacific, ran afoul Hasselwood Rock and ordered dinner as our ship actively sank. And now, now, dear friend, beloved listener, we do it all again. Welcome to season two of Ship Hits the Fan. Thank you. That Those oh, yeah. intros have become like just a rolling ball that just picks up everything in its path. <laughs> yeah, just muck. Yeah, just, just yeah, flotsam. Eh? Katamari. Right? We got merch. We got merch. We have merch. Yeah, it yeah. should be out today in the store. We've so. got a beautiful Better shirt. Be. If not, message the highest uh, the highest up person you can find on LinkedIn with Rooster Teeth in bio and yes. say, where the hell is my no, merch? No, you can't be saying stuff like that. I just did. I'm call, a loose Find kid. their phone number. Yeah, call them on their <laughs> personal line. Maybe that's even worse. If they don't respond, we will dox them in the next episode. <laughs> yep. Folks, you know the drill. Rate and review the show. Thank you for subscribing. Share it with your friends. We appreciate everyone, and we are so excited for this season. We've got some really fun stuff mapped out, and I want to give it all away now, but I forget what we decided on. Yeah, and real quick, just everybody whining about seasons in podcasts. Um, we need time, okay, to put everything together. I think that's a, a vocal minority. <laughs> I, I think that's one person. <laughs> well, yeah, I want to make sure they know they're heard. I agree with them. I agree with them. We are lazy oh, yeah. and should do more. But yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It is what it is, but we have a oft-requested 
topic today. Oh, real quick though, for for merch, where should they go if they want to go? Oh, Rooster Teeth store. store. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we got, a, a, hood, we got a hoodie. Knows. No, I know. I know. We got to go to roosterteeth.com, get yourself to the store. We got a, I think, a hoodie and a t shirt. I love yeah. the design. I'm looking, I'm, we haven't gotten them quite yet as of recording, but I'm real stoked to get that hoodie. They're yeah. cool looking. Yeah, they're cool. We don't need all hoodies right. at all in Texas, except for maybe two weeks out of the year, but I'm stoked. When the entire infrastructure goes down. Yes. Yeah, yeah right. You, need, you desperately need a hoodie. Yes. Look out for the goose down ship hits the fan parka. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. All right. Yeah, we got a heavy hitter. We got a big one, uh, a doozy, an oft requested, as you said. We are today looking at the Halifax Harbor explosion. During World War I, Halifax Harbor was a busy port, to say the least. Situated on the eastern coast of Canada, the harbor is one of the most important on the continent. It's mainland North America's closest large port to Europe, which, as you can imagine, meant it was very important during wartime. Yeah, I guess it, I guess it would be the <laughs> furthest east, wouldn't it? Uh, and north. Yeah, it's like it's like north, and it's like right on the other side of Maine. So yeah, it's it's not that it's like super close to Europe, but relative to everything else in North America, it is. Okay, yeah. not to get all Sorolla about it, but there was an airport, also a famous Canadian airport, that was the connecting one for most international flights across the Atlantic. Uh, oh. And it fell out of fashion when planes became uh, more efficient and could fly further. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, back to the sea. <laughs> Halifax Harbor was constantly crowded with wartime shipping traffic. They carried troops, relief supplies, and munitions across the Atlantic Ocean. Shoreline was full of rail lines as well, stretching from shipping terminals into the interior of the continent. As a result of its location and strategic importance, Halifax Harbor was huge, could accommodate more than 100 ships, and better yet, it was invisible from the open ocean. That was extremely valuable in World War I when the German U-boats regularly terrorized Allied ships on the Atlantic. As a defensive measure, ships during World War I would gather in Halifax Harbor to form convoys for the perilous journey across the Atlantic, safety in numbers after all. Inside the harbor is a natural bay called Bedford Basin, and that is where ships would gather to prepare for the trip across the ocean. During the war, the basin was protected by two sets of anti-submarine nets and guarded by patrol ships of the Royal Canadian Navy. Whoa. Boys, we got the nets out. You're safe. I got one. There's really pulling it in. Dad, dad, look. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but I do just imagine some... Me you know, and the boy a caught a hundred footer today. Yeah. Hey, we caught a submarine, Mr. Leahy. Ah, oh, shut up, Julian. No, you didn't. <laughs> That is, I think this is Trailer Park Boys country, right? I think so. Uh, or is that Newfoundland and Labrador? I don't know. I thought the explosion was because Bubbles was keeping too much stuff in his trailer. And that's <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, definitely an enclave in the river that's invisible, filled with shopping carts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Julian. That's our kingdom. <laughs> So Halifax and the neighboring city of Dartmouth were protected by a large army garrison along with forts, gun batteries, and <laughs> anti-submarine nets. All <laughs> neutral ships coming to North America were required to report to Halifax for inspection. These factors all contributed to a major military, industrial, and residential expansion to the city. Hey, if you're going to want to come in, you're going to have to pass through uh, here. It's going to be tough. I want to apologize in advance because it's going to be tough. And we're going to try to keep the accents to a minimum. Um, but we gotta know, do it's going to slip through at some point. I mean, this is this is an awful uh, disaster. Yeah. Hey, boys, we need to we need to check your boat dairy. Hey, we got to check <laughs> that first. This reminds me of like the oil towns in North Dakota. 
where you basically go from a town. Yeah. I mean, we all we all know Minot, of course. Minot, <laughs> hey, North Dakota. <laughs> my, hey, listen, you know what I'm always saying? Why not? Uh-huh. Uh, before doing something stupid. It's like, why not? What? Oh. Okay. It doesn't work, but no, I say yeah. it a lot. Okay. <laughs> basically, like, there's all these towns in North Dakota that they were basically, there was nothing there. Uh-huh. It's just people in their fit. It's where you would go to visit your grandparents if you lived in Minnesota or Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, it's like flooded with people from Ohio, Wyoming, wherever. And it's just like these giant cities form of just trailers because it's just people coming in for the oil money just and like it's that. overnight. Yeah. It's, the, it's like the gold rush. It's gold rush. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. Where I, I grew, I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is in the Northern part of the state. And it was an oil boom town and you can mm-hmm. tell not anymore. And, but you could tell like going through downtown, I remember as a kid, it's like, Oh, this place used to be really nice 80 years ago. It had yeah. like the, these like really ornate hotels. One of them was like the first in the country to have air conditioning indoors. Like, yeah, you can, so you can tell it's like, there used to be a lot of money here at one point. Oh, well, I, and you're yeah. from Pennsylvania where the entire state is that. Okay. A lot of it. Yes. There are a lot of dead coal towns. <laughs> uh, certainly a lot of and steel structure and steel. Yeah. You've got all kinds of infrastructure. Name an industry. It has come and gone from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Yeah, we've had our fair share of uh, resources taken from the earth and uh, uh, and ruinous uh, small towns, which uh, have not been kept up. But it has a booming pill industry now. So, you know, all things in their time. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is true. A big player in the uh, the opiate crisis. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. So, yeah, you know. you know, We've also got all Pittsburgh. All goes a lot up. of bridges. Okay. Huh? City of bridges, you could say. You lost coal, steel, Will Smith, but you got opiates. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that this is we got Rocky, a fake guy. That's true. Okay, <laughs> point point taken. Point taken. Um, and before we get into, I guess, like kind of failed championship runs as well for the, for your great state, we should probably just segue quickly back into the actual disaster. Not in the second, as, second, we're done with that. As you can see. Every possible precaution was taken to secure Halifax Harbor, making the ensuing tragedy all the more heartbreaking. Yeah, the statue is pretty nice. We, we it's not a real guy, but like it's a nice photo op. We have to keep going. Okay, okay. I love that there's a statue of a movie boxer there. I think it's charming. It the funniest thing in the world. I, I want more fake guys. Also a little racist because like Joe Frazier is from Philadelphia, like a great I think champion. Multiple ama- like there's a lot of boxers, sports trips from yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah, but, but we should keep uh, we should keep going down this yeah, route. Yeah, we should put yeah, up yeah, like yeah, a yeah. crash bandicoot statue. Anyway, <laughs> and that's in front of the art museum. The art museum. He ran up the steps. What do you want? Oh, yeah, and Rocky is the finest piece of art to come out of your face. Okay, we should get going. The giant statue. I agree, yeah. So let's get into the actual crash. On the morning of December 6th, the French freighter, the SS Mont Blanc, was about to leave North America on a mission. The ship was packed with explosives, including 2,300 tons of picric acid. Not sure what that is, but it sounds bad. 200 tons of TNT. 35 tons of high-octane gasoline, and 10 tons of gun cotton. Again, also sounds scary. I don't know what most of this is, but it all sounds bad. I, I want to yeah. point out, give a little context right now. So 1917, we're a few years into World War I yeah. as it stands. And World War I was kind of a, a sea change in 
war because before this it had kind of a romanticism to it you know it was honorable to go out into battle and you fought valiantly and there was there were certain rules of engagement yeah. and like a romanticism and then the terrifying reality of technology and chemical warfare there and were gassing gassing people and, yeah. and shelling and and like in the span of this single yeah. uh massive uh conflict war took on a completely different shade i i mean like it was never good but it lost that sort of like let's all go out on a war today gentlemen and in this now it is psychologically physically mentally grueling and awful so there it always was but i think there was like a certain it always was i'm sure there was also a certain controlling of the narrative which still existed for them a lot in World War One as yeah, well. But, but, but the, the might of, of killing technology has reached an all-time peak at yeah. this point, and it's very new to the world. And it's, it's yeah, it's very like, wait, why are we doing this? Yeah. Because three yeah. cousins are pissed at each other? Right. This one's for Ferdinand! Yeah, like, it's just a strange, yeah. Well, we figured out war. <laughs> <laughs> Having been loaded up in New York, the Mont Blanc arrived at Halifax Harbor, where it would link up with a military convoy that would escort it across the Atlantic. Meanwhile, that same morning, the Norwegian vessel Emo, Emo? I'm going to say Emo, was leaving Halifax Harbor. It also had a wartime mission. It was headed for New York City, where it would be filled with relief supplies and then head to Belgium. It's filled with a couple of slices. Yeah, Do yeah, I have a cool. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Brian hey, like we got three <laughs> pies for you over here. Who's paying for these? It's going to be a little cold by the time you get it in Belgium or wherever that is. <laughs> and like we said, the Mont Blanc was headed in the opposite direction. It was entering Halifax Harbor from the Atlantic. But there was an issue. To get in or out of the harbor's basin, ships had to pass through a strait called the Narrows. Mm. Uh yeah. Normally, in this situation, ships were expected to stay on the starboard side, but the Emo was in a hurry to leave. It had been delayed, waiting for a load of coal, and now its pilot, William Hayes, was trying to make up time. Yeah, this whole this whole thing was started basically by the same logic that someone uses when they're just impatient at a red light or just yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're doing something stupid because they're running late and they're weaving in and out of traffic. That's what caused this whole thing. It's so crazy when, like, the amount of accidents, like, catastrophes that are caused because someone is like, oh, I'm not going to be there on time. I'm late. I'm late. You're driving. You're piloting a, what what did we establish ships are? 400 tons? 400,000 tons? Somewhere in there? 200,000 tons? Uh, You're just saying numbers at me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway. uh, (laughs) If they needed coal, they should have stopped. What I'm saying is, all these ships around, yeah, all the ships around you are loaded with gunpowder. Yes, TNT at best. Be a little late. Be a little late. Well, they Don't couldn't. They couldn't hurry. be. You, they could be. Don't hurry. Well, because the slices were going to get cold. Exactly. Yeah. That special bag can only keep the slices warm for so long. <laughs> so, in its rush to get out of the harbor, the Emo passed a series of ships, which resulted in it veering closer and closer to the northeastern side of the harbor, where the city of Dartmouth was located. According to accounts, the Emo was traveling at a higher speed than allowed, normally about five knots or 5.8 miles per hour. That's what the allowed speed. Yeah, if you think about the straits, you've got Dartmouth on one side and then the city of Halifax on the other. 
just for your your own visual, just keep that. Right. Okay. Yes. But it's airing towards the wrong side of the Naris. Correct. Yes. Mm, good. Okay. That's good. And you can look up maps of this and stuff if you're curious. I mean, you should. We'll we'll put some we'll, we'll put some also, up. Yeah. Uh, on Instagram. So. As the emo was leaving, the Mont Blanc was entering the harbor and the safety of Bedford Basin. As the emo and the Mont Blanc approached each other, both ships exchanged warning signals and tried to take evasive maneuvers. The Mont Blanc pilot, Francis Mackey, first saw the emo when she was about three quarters of a mile away. Mackey was concerned because the emo's path appeared to be heading toward his ship's starboard side as if to cut him off. Good. Yeah. Mackie gave a short blast of his ship's whistle to indicate that he had the right of way. <laughs> I have the right of way. I'm not moving. Uh, I have the <laughs> yeah. But the emo responded with two short blasts, which meant that it wasn't going to yield. No. Yeah. Late. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe neither ship at this point even was capable of moving. Yeah, three quarters of a mile is not very far. They're not going that fast, though. I, it does sound like just two stubborn drivers <laughs> yelling back and who forth. We're trying to get other. into the same parking space at Costco. Like, <laughs> just like, yeah, it, this is that we can't even be generous and assume this is two people in a hallway going, oh, yeah, I'll just go. Uh, oh, up. <laughs> it seems like I'm not going to move. Yeah, this is people just walking at each other. Yeah. This feels like a fight video, but it's of two old guys on a street in New York, just yelling at each other. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of very slowly come to blows. Those are yep. the best, though. So the captain ordered Montblanc to halt her engines and angle slightly to starboard, closer to the Dartmouth side of the Narrows. He let out another single blast of his whistle, hoping the emo would also move to its starboard. But yet again, the emo responded with two blasts, which again means, uh-uh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not going to happen. This is this is toxic masculinity. Oh yeah, on display. <laughs> you could probably say the same about many wars. Oh, like all of them, if yeah. not all. Oh, I know. I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, uh, okay, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I should have held my tongue. Sailors on nearby ships heard the series of signals and realized that a collision was imminent. They gathered to watch as the two ships got closer and closer to each other. There's just nothing better, is there? <laughs> We just, we, there is something in our heads that just yes. can't not look. Yeah, we, this is the same part of the human brain that put those two trains on the same track against yes. each other. Right, just Brian? Just see what would happen. And I would 100% be one of those sailors who was crowded Absolutely. in. We're talking 8.30 in the morning, right when I got to work, and there's an opportunity mm -hmm. to, like, get out of. Oh, I'm out the door. Yeah. Oh, like I'm sick instantly. And and I know there's going to be a crash. I know at least half of the day is going to be gone because of this. Crash. Oh, yeah. Well, it does, you know, in this story, it's like the people who brought picnics to watch Gettysburg, <laughs> one of the most gruesome, <laughs> yeah. horrific oh battlefields yeah. like or the uh, the poor civilians that went up to watch Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Families. Like, oh, okay. It's because regular life is really boring. And if you see two That's big true. old ships heading towards each other, get the kids. We're having lunch. Yeah. Oh, and head towards each other, did they? <laughs> yeah. So at this point, both ships had cut their engines, but their momentum carried them towards each other anyway. I, uh, so, I think what gets me about ship collisions is how quiet they are. Because obviously there's no skidding sounds. 
Well, there is that horrific impact sound. No, but, but I mean, as they the, approach, mo the yeah, moment to lead up, it's yeah. they're just gliding, and you, there's nothing you can do. And it's so hard to like get a figure or like a. It's so hard to mentally kind of interpret how fast they're going. Yes, until like they until part. they are. You watch a video, and you're like, it doesn't seem to be going. Yeah, that, uh -oh. and then they hit. Oh and it's boy! Like, Whoa! Yeah, but it's hundreds yeah. of tons moving, so it's exactly like, yeah huge. Yep. So finally, the two ships collide at around 8.45 a.m. You know everyone was cheering, and probably one guy was clapping sarcastically for him. There's a guy walking around with a little, little cart selling Molson's. <laughs> the collision itself wasn't severe, but the impact did cause some drums on the deck of the Mont Blanc to break open. Those drums were carrying benzol, a highly combustible motor fuel. Oh. Yeah. The benzol spilled onto the hold of the Mont Blanc and its massive cargo of explosives. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. You can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah. The two ships disengaged from each other, but that motion caused sparks, which ignited the benzol on the Mont Blanc. At this point, the Mont Blanc had run ashore and its crew abandoned the ship. Knowing what their ship was carrying, the crew attempted to alert those at the harbor of the grave danger that everyone was in. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like, you know that there's essentially a nuke that is about to go off. Yeah. And you're telling everyone, hey, we are all going to die right now. Yes. Run. We've got to get off the beach. There's a shark in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Amity will be open on the 4th of July. Yes. Okay, Chief. Did it work? Did everyone uh, clear out? Unfortunately, no. Oh. It did not. Spectators gathered along the waterfront to check out the commotion, and the Halifax Fire Department responded to the flaming ship. I mean, they were doing their job, the job yes. I suppose, but yeah. They're okay. They, yeah, they they were the only ones acting right. Them and the sailors, yeah. And then disaster struck. As firefighters were positioning their engine next to a hydrant, the Mont Blanc exploded at 9.05 a.m. So, I mean, they had like... 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah, that's the weird. Yeah, there was time. To be specific, it was 9.04 and 35 seconds. So if you're the oh. the timekeepers in the comments, we, we see We would you. have one for sure. Somebody would be in there, yeah. yeah. Actually. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, the moral of this is if a ship, even a truck, anything, yeah. you, you see it kind of crash on the side of the road and you're looking and the, the driver gets out and is screaming, run, <laughs> like run for your life, do so. Yeah. Get out of there. I think we've learned uh, from season one and this so far is get away from the boat. Yeah. Get away from the boat. Away. Just yeah. get away Clear from it. Clear the area. You do not want a rubberneck. It's like those videos yeah. where like you'll see somebody like pulled over and he's taking like video of a little fire. Like, oh, that's weird. That factory seems to be on fire. And then there's oh just the God. massive yeah. explosion. Oh yep. my goodness. Yeah. Uh, and God, this explosion is... Yes. Yeah. The word doesn't do it justice. Speaking of which, it is hard to overstate how massive the ensuing explosion was. To put it in some perspective, it was the largest man-made blast until the dropping of atomic bombs in World War II. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah. Oh, my God. That is the staggering. The energy from the blast tore through the Mont Blanc at 1,500 meters per second. Per second. I have no concept of that. Yeah, it's just, it's so big and so like powerful. 1,500 meters is, I think 1,600 meters is a mile. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 1,600 meters is one mile. 
So that is just under a mile a second. Oh my God. Yeah. The Mont Blanc essentially became a three kiloton bomb in the middle of a busy harbor. Oh no. A harbor between two cities that houses a hundred ships. The yep. most important harbor in North America <laughs> during war. Yeah. yeah. So temperatures from the explosion hit 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit at the center of the explosion. That is 4,982 degrees Celsius. Oh, that's not as bad. It's a dry, it's a dry heat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew, the Fahrenheit was what I knew, so. The, honestly, the Fahrenheit was a little more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. It's a higher number. White hot, we, we should do Kelvin for our friends in space. White hot shards of iron rained down upon Halifax and Dartmouth. You don't like that. No. This is like Avengers Endgame. Like, this is what they lived, the last scene. Too long? <laughs> yeah. The resulting shockwave shattered windows up to 50 miles away, and the sound of the explosion could be heard for hundreds of miles. And this is, this is insane. The amount of water displaced by the blast was so great that the harbor's floor was momentarily exposed. You could just see the bottom. What the hell? Hey, that's yeah. my car. I knew it. <laughs> Can you imagine you're 50 miles away? You're just sitting down for breakfast with your family and then your windows just explode inward. Hey, what the heck was that? <laughs> I guess the narrow is maybe maybe more shallow, but the max depth of Bedford Basin is 71 meters. So, yeah, fairly deep. Fairly deep. The blast was so strong that a 1,000-pound piece of the Mont Blanc's anchor was found two miles away. Oh God. Yeah. And the Mont Blanc's forward 90-millimeter gun landed about three and a half miles north of the explosion site near Albro Lake in Dartmouth. Its barrel was completely melted away. If this had somehow, if this technology for these explosives had somehow existed hundreds or thousands years earlier, this creates a new religion. This yeah, is the yeah, power yeah. of new gods. And like, this is, it's so, oh, it's so massive. The The power in this single moment is so explosive. I don't know. I don't have another word for it. Yeah. It's just like this. Yeah. It, it's it's like a, a Vesuvius exploding or or just like when, when you. The great deluge. Things getting wiped mm. off the map, <laughs> like just massive yeah. volcanic explosions. Yeah. And if not for this podcast, it would probably puzzle future generations. Yeah. yeah. So we're doing good work here. So more chunks and shards of the ship fell across an eight kilometer range. Vaporized fuel and chemicals coated people with a dark oily film. And the force of the blast destroyed almost the entire north end of the city of Halifax, including more than 1,600 homes. <sighs> Needless to say, the death toll was enormous. Yeah. More than 1,800 people were killed and another 9,000 were injured. Hundreds were blinded by broken glass. I mean, you're just sitting at home. Something about that statistic is just insane. Yeah. You're sitting at home 40 miles away mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your window explodes and blinds you. It's, it's really tremendously awful. Yeah. I mean, th this one, you can, you can really tell just how, I mean, obviously the number is high, but it's been so long and even still it just feels like such a yeah it's such a waste 
Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like yeah, all yeah. of it. Any, yeah. any, you know, any of the deaths recorded in World War One. It's like, well, that didn't need to happen. It is, but this especially is so tragic. God, I, I, I can't imagine. I, I just can't imagine in an instant. Yeah. Yeah. All these lives gone, and all the people affected by those deaths, and all the injuries, and all. I mean, it's just yeah. The 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 loss of life and limb, and it's just. So, just so catastrophic. So there were some notable survivors. Firefighter Billy Wells was hurled from the explosion and his clothes were ripped from his body. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. It's a little funny. You're in the largest explosion that has ever happened at that point and you just wake up naked on the shore. He was the only member of the eight-man firefighting crew to survive. Somehow this hunk survived and his clothes are gone. <laughs> <laughs> just posed to the a knee up on the yeah, beach, head yeah. propped up. Also, by, by the way, this next uh, line is is a little gruesome. So if you need to skip ahead 15 seconds, yeah. now oh, may yeah. be the time yeah. to do so. Wells described the devastation this way. Quote, the site was awful with people hanging out of windows dead, some with their heads missing and some thrown onto the overhead telegraph wires. Oh. Yeah. Oh, all in all, the explosion caused an estimated $35 million in damages, which is about $607 million in today's money. Thanks, Biden. Way to keep inflation down. So let's talk about the aftermath. Initially, the blast was so horrific that people thought it was a German attack. How I mean, did yeah, you not? I mean, that completely makes sense. Yeah. understandable. Yeah. Almost immediately after the explosion, relief efforts began. Scores of people from surrounding areas hauled the wounded clear and worked to free those caught in the wreckage. Amazingly, the crew of the Mont Blanc itself came out of the explosion mostly unscathed, with only one member dead, and that was due to shrapnel, probably because they knew what was coming and got as far away as possible. Yeah, I guess they just hit the ground running. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That surprised me a lot. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense once you think about it, that they, they knew the threat that was imminent, but right. like, even still, I would have just assumed that they would have all perished. Yeah, I'd be knocking on doors, do you have a basement? <laughs> uh, yeah, many of the first responders were soldiers and sailors who had been staying in barracks that were damaged by the blast. Others were from Canadian, British, and United States ships that were in port. As news of the explosion spread, relief poured in from all over the world. School children and heads of state donated money. Medical relief arrived from across Canada and the United States, reinforcing the work of local responders and providing specialized treatment for traumatic injuries. There's a lot of photographs of these people like showing up in mass to help out. Yeah, this is, I mean, we've seen this before. The Eastland disaster, immediately yeah. uh, citizens of Chicago just gathered to help in whichever way they could, whether it was flagging down cars or helping people out or unfortunately throwing chicken crates <laughs> yeah. into the water. But And, and this, is on a, this is on a larger scale. Like this is over the course of days and weeks. And Yeah, this is, but, but I mean, that yeah. same spirit. These are Canadian chicken crates yes. they're throwing into the water. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the death toll could have been worse, however had it not been for an intercolonial railway dispatcher and Canadian hero, Patrick Vincent Coleman, who was working extremely close to the pier where the explosion occurred. Prior to the explosion, Coleman and his coworker were warned by a sailor about the burning Mont Blanc, and both men began to flee. Hey, why is that guy in the sailor suit hauling booty? He is yeah, running. Yeah, like, dead doing a Terminator 2 sprint out of his ship. <laughs> Gotta go, ship, exploding, run. Um, All right. But Coleman remembered that an incoming passenger train from St. John, New Brunswick, was due to arrive at the rail yard within minutes. 
He returned to his post and continued to send out urgent telegraph messages to stop the train. Several variations of the message have been reported, among them this from the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic, quote, hold up the train, ammunition ship a fire in harbor making for Pier 6 and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Wow. Yeah. Goodbye, boys. That goodbye, boys. That is that's that's like that a, deserves a Canadian. That's accent. like the Canadian Clint Eastwood. The goodbye, boys. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As a result of Coleman's message, all incoming trains around Halifax were stopped. And I know about this in advance, prior to looking it up, because our very own Elias Willems showed me. Uh, I believe it's called Canadian Heritage Minutes, which is like kind of a a PBS sort of like. Oh, yes. It would air on a national broadcasting network between, you know, where an ad break would typically. Yeah, I I think I understand that. Um, Just like a bite-sized thing. Like a house ad, but for Canada. Like Kind of, yeah. Yeah, this is is for our stuff. But yeah, it's Heritage Minutes, and it's these great, super low budget, but there is one about this guy. So I highly recommend you look up the uh, Halifax Explosion Canadian Heritage Minute. The train from St. John halted a safe distance from the blast, saving the lives of about 300 railway passengers. Coleman was killed at his post. Goodbye, boys. Yeah. Yeah. While Halifax bore the brunt of the explosion, other nearby communities were hit too. Dartmouth, which lay on the other side of the harbor, suffered heavy damage. Almost 100 people were estimated to have died on the Dartmouth side. Across the city, windows were shattered and buildings were damaged or destroyed, including the Oland Brewery and parts of the Star Manufacturing Company. Small enclaves of the First Nations people were also affected by the blast. And forgive me for my pronunciation, but particularly the Mi'kmaq who lived in and around the coves of Bedford Basin and on the Dartmouth shore. The Mi'kmaq community of Turtle Grove was close to the center of the blast. The settlement was obliterated by the explosion. A precise Mi'kmaq death toll isn't known, but nine bodies were recovered from Turtle Grove. Mm. And it gets worse. The Turtle Grove settlement was not rebuilt after the explosion. Survivors were sent to a racially segregated building under poor conditions, and most were eventually dispersed around Nova Scotia. Oh, God. Guys. Yeah, that's all you got, really. Yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty bad. Do we really need to make it that much worse? It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it gets. it does get a little worse. Meanwhile, the community of Efreekville, which consisted of predominantly black Canadians on the southern shores of Bedford Basin, was also harshly affected by the explosion. Because it was on raised ground, the community was spared somewhat from the direct force of the explosion, but its homes were still heavily damaged and five residents were reported killed. Even before the blast, Efreekville was extremely neglected and despite residents paying city taxes, it did not receive services like water mains, sewer lines, or police and fire department services. If you can believe it. Ah, uh, yes. 1917. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. or many, many other decades <laughs> following. Yeah. Now in some places. Yeah. 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 Yep. Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Following the explosion, Africville received almost none of the relief funds. And while much of the city was rebuilt after the explosion, residents of Africville were basically left to fend for themselves. That is disheartening, mm-hmm. but unfortunately not the most surprising thing. The community was eventually raised in the 1960s and residents were relocated. Part of the community is now occupied by a highway interchange. Always a highway. It's always a highway. Sometimes it's a Dodger stadium. That's true. In 2010, the city of Halifax issued a formal apology for the eviction and destruction of Africville, presumably when everyone involved had died. Oh, yeah, and they didn't have to pay anybody money. No. Two descendants might have been there for a 
uh, ribbon sort of slack. Yeah, they got the key to the city thing. or something. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess you know it. I guess it's it's good to it could admit be, that you did something horrible a hundred years ago, but at the same time, it's like it's a little late. So like, is it, it loop service? Is right, it yeah. um, apology culpability? I, As part of our apology, please accept this gift card to Tim Hortons. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, we should we do need to play the blame game here a little bit, of course. An inquiry was formed to investigate the collision. Its report in 1918 blamed the collision on the Mont Blanc's captain, Ami Lemedec, the ship's pilot, Francis Mackey, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt, the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of the harbor. The inquiry's commissioner stated that, given the Mont Blanc's cargo, quote, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs. Well, Sure, but if the other ship is saying I ain't stopping, right? Yeah, what I, are you supposed to I do? Have to stop for coal. I need to get through. Right. I have a big shipment of matches. I need to get out of here. So for his part, Mackie, who was an experienced harbor pilot, had asked about special protections such as a guard ship given the Mont Blanc's cargo, but no such protections were put in place. Mackie, Medek, and Wyatt were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence at a preliminary hearing. But the charges against Mackey and Medic were later dismissed, and a jury later acquitted Wyatt in a trial that lasted less than a day. I mean, yeah, it seems pretty clear that they weren't at fault, from what we know. I mean, yeah. granted, we're amateurs going off of like all these articles we read and stuff, and it was 100 Obviously, years ago. Incredibly but, like, complex situation. But... It doesn't sound like they really could do much. I mean, they, and they when they got off, they tried to warn people. So I don't, I don't know. While the Mont Blanc was initially found to be totally at fault in later civil proceedings, courts found that both ships were equally to blame for the collision. No party was ever convicted for any crime for any actions that precipitated the disaster. The blast was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions ever. Hmm. Yeah, the Halifax explosion was the standard by which other large blasts were measured. Yeah, and Time Magazine invoked the explosion when writing about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, saying that the little boy bomb was seven times that of the Halifax explosion, which is kind of not that much. I mean, seven? It's, a, it's it's seven times, but like, holy... It's nuclear power. Like, it's an right. entirely yeah. different technology, and yeah. even that is only seven times. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, the Halifax was so big, it Ooh. was within spitting distance of little boy, of, of an atomic bomb. Yeah. So that is enough about atomic bombs. Let's get into what happens after the bombs drop, the remembrances. Hmm. The Maritime Museum of the Atlantic created a temporary exhibit dedicated to the explosion in 1987. It was called A Moment in Time. The display received a huge response, and seven years later, the museum created a permanent exhibit, Halifax Wrecked, an updated version called Explosion in the Narrows, opened in 2019. So if you're in the Halifax area... And you've been, or, you know, send us some photos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hit us up on Ship Hits Pod on Instagram and Twitter and and uh, let us know if you've seen some of this stuff. Uh, we, would, we would love to, to hear from you. Yeah, and we'll post some stuff to the Twitter account as well. Photos, stuff like that of the aftermath. Yeah, yeah. So. We've, been, we've been still playing catch up, but we will post these. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there you have it. That's the Halifax explosion. Insane. Yeah. Oh, Lord. I mean, I, I, I knew... I was aware of this before, you know, we started doing mm -hmm. the episode or whatever. Uh, but 
Good God. I mean, you see the- It's hard to imagine that type of- exp- Like there's something, when you when you put the word like atomic or nuclear in it, I feel like then then the, the sky's the limit. That suggests a different you, kind of scale that totally obliterates. This yes. feels like a much more real, tangible, and like grounded sort of destruction yeah. that I, I, I think the fact that it is like, that people did survive close to it, it just, it feels so much more like, I don't know, like- random and vicious and animalistic yeah. and just like tear, the way it tore through parts of uh, of Halifax and Dartmouth and the surrounding ships. I mean, like you, you look up something like this and you get the surface stuff. You get when it happened, where it happened, how many people died. And mm-hmm. like that alone from this story is astronomical and, and shocking. But once you dig into it and you learn like what was on it and and how the crew was trying to warn people and just the 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 toll it took on spectators uh, who yeah. were just lived who the only the crime they committed was living in their houses in this area obviously yeah. not a crime but like that that is what put them in this position it's it's really um stunning i yeah. i think with like the least glamorous uh, a definition of that word. Mm-hmm. It it also to me when I look up things like this, for me there's always an initial kind of my eyes almost glaze over because it was a long time ago. The photos, if if there are any, or they're black and white. It's grainy and it's just kind of like okay, yeah, this seems pretty bad. But when you dig into it and you uh, see all that happened, it becomes much more vivid to me at least and much more re- and just completely heartbreaking and tragic. It's just, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, it's part of the horrors of war because this ship would not have been packed with explosives if there hadn't been a right. giant war on, and it was taking these to Europe to go blow other people up. You know, it's all part of this awful, awful chain of events. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's terrible. All these explosives uh, worked as they were designed yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were made to do this and then all put on a boat that had no protection outside of it. Further precautions beyond try to steer clear of other boats. Yeah. And like you said, all in service of a war of just colonial empires mad at each other that that just triggered. Yeah. And without World War One, you don't get World War Two. I mean, it's just it goes on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, look. It's good to be back. Certainly. Back doing real episodes. We'll see you next week. Got a fun season planned. Wait, we got a... I know. Oh. (laughs) Before we do all that. Okay. There it is. If you could give me a second, please. It just sounded like you were... (laughs) Can I get... Prematurely wrapping up. Could I get an honorable mention, Foghorn? There it is. The shores of Austin, Texas. (laughs) I hear them every day (laughs) in my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) this week's honorable mention takes us all the way to the rock and roll capital of the world baby cleveland (laughs) so september 1986 brian was 28 years old (laughs) just had my first beer (laughs) uh united way the charity and the city of cleveland had a dream set the world record for largest ever mass balloon release. <laughs> this was the thing. This was the thing. It was finally going to put Cleveland on the map. It was finally, they weren't going to be the butt of all these jokes anymore, okay? 
It was going to make people forget that the river had caught on fire over a dozen times. Okay. Unfortunately, they were holding this largest ever mass balloon release right next to the annual power line convention. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, um, actually, it's almost worse than that. Yeah. So oh, did I guess it? Oh, don't. No, well, no, no, you didn't guess yeah. it, but it's it's a bad. Yeah, it it's doesn't bad. end well. And we it does it does take to the sea. Don't worry. <laughs> so a name that I'm sure um, a man that I'm sure needs no introduction here. <laughs> Treb Heining. The Wait, conf- I don't know this name. Who is this? You don't know the Confetti King. Treb the Heining. Confetti King? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just say so. so. Here's the thing. You don't know Treb Heining by name, but you know him by his works. Yes. Uh, if you've ever seen the confetti drop in Times Square, well, my friend, you know Treb. Oh. Uh, if you've ever seen a bunch of balloons release at Disneyland, you know Treb. Here's, here's another bet. Here's a good one. You know those Mickey inside a bigger Mickey balloons? Of course, yeah. At the Treb a- joint. <laughs> Treb that's Heining. A, that's a Heining? Tre, the Confetti King invented that balloon. Wow. Yeah. You got Heining, baby. Yep. It is a balloon inside another balloon. So, obviously, when you want to do a balloon event, there's only one man you call. The Confetti King? Treb it Heining. doesn't make any sense. Well, he's known for a lot of things. <laughs> and Treb Heining, who did plan this event, had this to say, quote, It's absolutely astonishing to try to get something like this off. This is a prime example of what United Way is trying to do in terms of saying, Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes. Crappy cities love to do stuff like this. These stunts that they are sure is going to put them on the map, is going to turn the corner, baby. I, I worked in Waco, Texas. They were full of this stuff. Like, do you honestly think somebody... In like, I don't know what city you're imagining. In this case, maybe it's Akron, Dayton, uh, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati. It's like someone is going to see this in in far away Cheyenne, Wyoming. Wow. They're going to see this and they're going to say, you know what? Cleveland's the place for me. I think more than that, far away, someone in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami will see this go, hey, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah, Cleveland does have all that I was. Cleveland actually for. does rock. Cleveland, <laughs> it rolls. When we win the world's largest burrito contest, our grandchildren are gonna come home. They are gonna move out of New York and grow out their bangs. The best part is, it's only <laughs> ever covered in like regional news, unless something goes disastrously wrong. <laughs> Which uh, no one cares outside of Cleveland. Uh, whatever. You get the idea. We're talking about it now, so you can probably imagine where this is So, headed. I mean, despite Cleveland being the butt of jokes, it's a big, it's like a big a ma- major American city. Yeah. I've been. Yeah. yeah. It's got a football team. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I it got turns food poisoning out that there. releasing 1.5 million balloons in the heart of a pretty large American city, not a great idea. Hmm. Yeah, especially doing so when a front of rain and cold air is blowing into town. Yes. Uh, causing the helium to, you know, uh, not work as long. And the balloons come down. And, oh, baby, did they come down. They knew this cold front was coming in, too. If you watch the news broadcast, which... I recommend. You really got to watch this news broadcast. It's a two-man team hosting this, and one of them is very small. I can't remember. It's a little guy. Little is is before it. They also interview a woman on the street, and one of them kisses her on the cheek as she leaves. You ever watch Old Family Feud? 
No, I haven't. That guy was. Oh, Richard Dawson. He loved getting some sugar. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he okay. did. Okay, well, even still, you can hear them in the broadcast going like, we've got some cold front coming in, but we feel confident that now is the time. And I cannot yeah. overstate the scale of this net. How many balloons, balloons. there are, I yeah. thought it was fake when I was yeah. watching the video. I was like, this is a VFX guerrilla marketing thing for it some is not. agency. Not in 1986, baby. Nope. So over the next few days, balloons rained down from the sky. They caused traffic accidents and multiple horse deaths because, as we know, horses love balloon meat. I think there was actually a lawsuit for about $100,000 that ended up settling outside of court because this woman's horses, so many of them died. They were like, oh, cool. What's that? Yeah. Oh. Yep. Because they just pop and then horses eat them and it, I guess it kills them. I don't know. How, Definitely you know, comes up but, to work. So that yeah. doesn't surprise me. So you may be asking, hang on, this is a this is a shipwreck podcast. What does it have to do with the high seas? And now we get sad. Yeah. Uh, so two fishermen, Raymond Broderick and Bernard Sulzer, had just been reported missing when the balloons were released. Well, that day, anyway. Um, their boat was located pretty quickly, not by helicopter, because that was impossible, but the Coast Guard could not even search the area properly because of what they described as a, quote, asteroid field of balloons. It looks like a slice of confetti cake. It is, there's multicolored orbs floating as far as the eye can see. This is Lake Erie. It's Lake Erie, and they are looking for a life jacket or a head bobbing around in the water, and they just simply cannot. I mean, it's completely covered in balloons. Yes. It's the full surface of the lake. field of balloons. I love how their solution to put Cleveland back on the map, a city that is known as the mistake by the lake, and with this uh -huh. incredibly, the lake that is caught on fire, their solution is to basically dump a bunch of plastic into the lake. Yeah, it's to pollute like maniacs. Like no one has polluted before. We shall put ourselves like, on the map by sacrificing fishermen. Yeah. And these were floating ashore across the lake in Canada for like months later. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, a lot of them ended up in Canada. Yeah. Most of the balloons, I think, actually blew into Canada. Yeah. And also in like in farmland. They went all over the place. But yeah, unfortunately, the bodies of the two fishermen were not recovered until they floated to shore. Oh. What, like, I think it was days or even weeks later. Yeah. Uh, Broderick's wife ended up suing United Way. That was the charity that put on the event. And they settled out of court. So Cleveland, nice try. But you can't shake who you are. You're still Cleveland. Oh, uh, yeah, man. Balloons be damned. It look. Oh, I'm watching the footage now. It's crazy. Yeah, it looks like. Uh. Uh. Oh my god. It, there's so many of them. It's like looks like nanobots. Yeah. It's <laughs> millions of balloons. Yeah. And and also, I, we didn't mention the way that they pumped these up was they had hundreds and hundreds of school children. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm watching yeah. Them doing manual do labor by uh, pumping up these balloons, just like little hands tying them off. It's it's it's. You're watching. You're like, this is work. This is where it's it's amazing. We've got all these kids here tying off balloons. And then there's one yeah. little smart Alec by the side. Miss Far really sucks. <laughs> yep. It, this this video rivals that of the whale explosion from uh, episode. I want to say six or seven. Um, yeah. It, there's there is there's just an amazing like local news video that I, I everyone should look up. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening, and as always, may your bones bleach in these sands. Uh, we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.